like Vasquez said in Aliens, let's rock. If you're new to the tribe, we've got Rich behind the mix. Rad is across the table from me, and my name is Yanni Bormeister. Together we are Unity Gym, experts at turning driven people into athletes. This episode is brought to you by the Unify Movement System, the online program that balances strength, flexibility, and fitness so you can unleash your inner athlete. Get daily coaching by us, plus both of our epic gym and home UMS programs. As a valued listener, use the link in the description to get your first month free. Before we get started, I want to give a big warm welcome Welcome if you're watching on the YouTube channel. Remember to hit that like button. The more likes we get, the more people see this great content and subscribe if you like what you see. I'm super excited to announce that joining us today, we have Phil White from ADPT Physio and Tony Bataji from TonyBataji.com. Now, for those of you that don't know Tony, Tony started work in the fitness industry in 1995, first as a personal trainer and sports coach, and then moved into roles that included education, academia, and strength coaching. These days, Tony splits his time evenly between coaching one-on-one in the gym and running educational courses on many topics to do with training, program design, and body composition. He holds a PhD in sports science and has written more than 65,000 training programs and coached elite athletes in around 30 different sports. Welcome to the show, Tony. How are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely welcome. And uh, welcome, Phil. Great to have you on Thanks, the show thank you. as well. Always great to be here. Yeah, awesome. What's our... Uh, We're what's super excited today. This is a, a, going to be an absolute cracker. Uh, this question, this is our 2021 Unity Gym Tribe Q&A podcast series where we put out to our tribe and community to get uh, their questions answered. This question comes in from Aurelio Shrey from the UMS Online Coaching Group. He asks, how does exercise affect your sex drive and libido and why? So uh, I'm going to throw this one straight over because I could... Uh, I, I, straight I, to Tony. Let's, <laughs> let's see what the... Let's see before what the, in trouble. The before I get myself Tony. in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because I... Uh, yeah, I, I won't even start. I could, I, I, I could go down a rabbit hole on this one myself. <laughs> it's just one of the reasons why I train. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear, let's hear the right, scientific guys. version first, then we'll hear the uh... <laughs> our version. <laughs> All right. Well, there's essentially three ways we can look at sex drive libido in relation to exercise. And the first, which is not my area, but is the psychological aspect. And that is exercise gives us greater self-confidence. It can alter our appearance, our body composition, and all of those things combined increase our ability to want and look for sex. But from a physiological aspect, we can go in two directions. When we lift weights in particular, but also happens during aerobic exercise and interval training, but primarily when we contract muscle with volume and with intensity, then for the next 30 or so minutes, we increase the amount of testosterone circulating through the body and binding to androgen receptors in muscle. Now that is associated with an increase in sex drive. And that's part of the reason why those people who either take testosterone or lift weights regularly have a larger libido than those people who don't. So there certainly is a hormonal explanation for this ramp up in sex drive in proximity to lifting weights. But there is also a negative side And that is for those people who are trying to alter their body composition and restricting their energy, when the body does not get enough fuel based on the training demands, then the body responds by starting to shut down or reduce physiological functioning across a number of systems, 
from bone turnover to immune system and white blood cell count, but to also the reproductive hormones. So we see a reduction in the thyroid and in testosterone in particular when we are dieting aggressively, when, the, when we're expending energy and we're not just bringing that back in. So we lose body fat, we alter body composition, but the raw materials of sex drive being testosterone are actually being reduced. So it always depends on what state you're in. If you're in marked energy deficiency, then you will actually have a reduced libido. So a, a poor sex drive is a really common and well-known symptom of this relative energy deficiency in sport or, or, or not refueling appropriately. Or if you are and you're lifting weights regularly, then there's a testosterone drive for libido. It's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? Because most people will um, do a cutting phase or a diet to uh, enhance the way they look so that they can get laid more. And uh, <laughs> little do they know that they're actually completely destroying that their, their chances from an emotional, psychological and biological level. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the devil is certainly in the details because you can have moderate energy restriction with no change in testosterone at all. And this has been shown across different sports from endurance athletes to, to mixed martial artists when they're undergoing a, a body transformation, but it's moderate in their energy restriction and it enables training, it enables high work output, testosterone doesn't appear to really be affected. But when energy deficiency or, or the deficit becomes really large and aggressive, perhaps in that week before a weigh-in for a, a mixed martial artist, that's when we see testosterone dropping quite dramatically. What would you call a moderate energy deficiency, Tony? Mm -hmm. There's two ways that we can look at that. And the first is based on a percentage of total energy needs. And if you were to drop under, say, 35%, so you're going down to 40, 50% of energy budget for the day, that would be deemed aggressive. And you would most certainly see changes in the reproductive hormones and in the thyroid and in resting metabolic rate. So that sweet spot is probably around 30-ish percent reduction in total energy needs for the day. And in studies that have looked at testosterone as a marker, but has used periods of refeeding, so you might be in energy deficit for five or six days, and then you come out of that so that the body is exposed to higher carbohydrate and energy balance, then that also doesn't seem to affect testosterone as much as well. So there is a number of strategies that can be used. So first is a percentage of total. And then the second is a term called available energy. And that's based on, well, fat mass doesn't need energy. So we should be prescribing energy based on how much lean mass or fat-free mass that we have. And when you go under 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass of available energy, that's when we have the potential to start to see disruption to biological systems. But the data shows that you would need to go under 20 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass to see changes in testosterone. So at 20, we don't really see too much change. And as you approach 10, which you would see in aggressive dieting, then that's where you would certainly see changes in reproductive hormones. And over what sort of time frame are we talking here? Um when you're saying under... Yeah, so the pioneering studies which were done in the 1980s showed a, a period of one week, so five days, of an available energy of 10 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, then that would be enough to throw metabolic systems into 
in, in into disaster zone basically. So it can happen very quickly, That's very quickly. It, yeah. And it was certainly shown recently in a mixed martial artist with a one week cut in that metabolic rate and testosterone dropped both significantly with a with a one week uh, cut before weigh in. That's a that'd be a serious calorie uh, restriction. I'm just doing the maths in my head here. Mm. The last time mm -hmm. I got a DEXA scan, I think that my uh, lean mass was around the 80 kilogram mark, 75 or 80 kilos. So we're talking like 750 to 800 calories a day. And that same DEXA scan showed my uh, resting metabolic rate was about 2,230 mm. calories. Um, so we are talking yeah. serious. Um, That's right. So available energy is your set 10 calories times by fat free mass plus the energy you expend in exercise right. okay Sorry. so that's I how you work out the number so that yeah so that's how we work out available energy so for you rad it would be to get that number that would castrate you it would be 10 times 80 plus what you expend in all exercise sessions which would then be you know a thousand two hundred thousand three hundred something like that so if you were to do that for a week to really have an aggressive cut then you would be castrating yourself at the same time. Which that is even more interesting because that is the kind of dieting that people go well below uh, when they mm. are trying mm. to, you know, get, a, yeah. you know, do an extreme weight loss because that number now jumps up to uh, more like 1,800 to 2,000 calories, which mm -hmm. um, people, you know, well, at least if they're, if they're being honest with their calorie trackers uh, are going quite below mm. that. It's a it's a huge problem. You know, I love the the, the conversation and the and the um, um, the comparisons are being done with fighters because it's a huge problem for. I mean, the fighters that um, that have to cut a lot of weight and they, they, you see it more and more. They're just going, oh, you know what? I'm not going to do it anymore because it's terrible for longevity as well, which we have we we can speak about a little bit more on. But um, even just to, for for performance on the day. You know, you're not, if you cut right up and do your way in the day before, you're not going to restore your, 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 your systems, um, within 24 hours really, are you? So you're going to go into your competition, as we say, castrated, you know, like feeling pretty lousy. Yeah. And, and that's been demonstrated that if you give somebody a week of aggressive energy restriction and then ad libitum feeding over the weekend and in one study, they brought them right down in available energy. And then on the weekend, they took it up to, I think, 77 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass over the weekend. So it's a huge refeed. And that didn't restore all of those physiological functions. So wow. it's a problem. The term is called relative energy deficiency in sport. But we see it all the time in the fitness industry when less calories are better and more exercise is better and you create this perfect storm of low energy availability and all the metabolic and hormonal complications that come with that. So can we talk a bit about gender differences as well with this? Is it exactly the same sort of pathways in both men and women with the testosterone or is it a bit different as well? Yeah, it, it's the same because the underlying driver of complications is low energy availability. And so we see changes in reproductive hormones, point black males and females in bone markers, of uh, bone formation, both males and females are the same. So there seems to be very similar outcomes. And that's why female athlete triad and the male equivalent, the male athlete triad, are now terms that are replaced to uncover both genders and is now just called relative energy deficiency. 
Do you want to talk a little bit? Uh, is that what you wanted to talk about before? Yeah, well, last time we chatted, we um, brought that up. And I think it's like from a physio perspective, it's something that when you're, you're studying physiotherapy, there's a tendency, I think, as like old school physio is to like zoom in on if you see a stress fracture, it's like, what, how can we rehab this specific stress fracture, get them in a boot and really zoom in on that particular area. But um, kind of as uh, things are progressing, it's we're sort of zooming out and looking at the bigger context of um, how the uh, human is actually engaging in in their activity and in, in in their lifestyle, and I think that's where I think physiotherapy is going is kind of more as a like kind of health consultant, and it's an area that I'm um, learning about at the moment. But I'm so stoked to have Tony here to really um, have that big that deeper background on. So I'll definitely let you take this one away, Tony. <laughs> Reds, the, the the interesting aspect of injuries and and the rehabilitation of injury especially when people are trying to diet and and keep their physique so you, you could be training improved your body composition and then you've sustained an injury well the first thing that you think is well i can't train so i'm not going to eat anymore and this again comes back to relative energy deficiencies so wound healing and injury healing requires energy but it's a low order priority when you consider so many other functions that have to go on inside the body, your the body doesn't take energy and send it to bone or to uh, muscles to, to, to repair them after injury when there's only a little bit of energy coming back in. It's going to send that energy to the brain and to the heart and to the lungs. And all of those get their share of energy before wounds do. So if you are injured, it's really important to be in energy balance or slight energy surplus, even though you want to eat less because you can't exercise as much. So it's this push pull of our brain saying, well, let's dial it back versus what your muscles or your tendons or your bone actually needs. And worse, there's research to show just really recent research that it's not just low energy deficiency in bone. Carbohydrate is also a sensor. So in our industry where people dial back their carbohydrate, but they ramp up their training, there's a mismatch between the use of carbohydrate and actually what you're refueling. And it can induce relative energy deficiency, even though you might be in energy balance because carbohydrate is a sensor. So there's been some recent data from the AIS have shown that normal energy, but low carbohydrate based on training demands can also result in poor bone turnover. And if that's continued over time, then that's where we start to see bone issues with fractures and, and, uh, and, and, and stress fractures as well. Interesting. Which is, which is becoming more and more common in, uh, in UFC. Mm. It's mm. almost, it feels like mm. every, every other month, someone slaps a shin and mm. their leg splits in half. It even mm. happened to Conor McGregor just it's recently. Brutal, yeah. 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 Involved in triathlon at the moment, and it's it's huge there as well because it's just a, the sheer training load of getting in that mm. much training and trying to time it throughout the day. Like, and, yeah. and then people have in their head that you know yeah. they want to be low carb or time restricted eating. On top of that, mm -hmm. it can really, um, yeah. It's, I, I know a few people in my current triathlon club have got some stress fractures going on. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's tricky. absolutely. So, Tony, what's your what's your stance on the notion that being in caloric restriction optimizes health? Um, I, there were, I, I even I think I even recall a chapter on uh, on this in Marion Nestle's book, Why Calories Count. They sort of looked at the fact that eating less in general this is a very generalized statement um pr like it elongates life you know um 
and there is certainly sort of um, the, the proponents of fasting regimes or the zealots of intermittent fasting will claim that, you know, um, being in caloric deficit is generally more healthy than being in caloric surplus. What's your stance on that? It's well understood that caloric restriction in animal models results in the prolonging of life. Uh, that's beyond dispute. Where it becomes contentious is from a practical level for humans, and that is, well, if you are calorically restricted, you might live longer, but you won't have any strength or muscle mass to enjoy your extra years. So the idea that you want to be a caloric restrictor, but without an exercise stimulus is just a, it's just silly because the predictors of aging are muscle mass and strength. And you build muscle and strength by being in energy balance and exposing yourself to regular protein feedings and not cycling your weight up and down where your body loses muscle, gains muscle, loses muscle, gains muscle. So I'm not at all excited by the rodent studies and the animal studies that look at caloric restriction. I'm really interested in the health of my client's muscle and their strength as we age. So we should be putting our eggs in the basket of being fit from a mitochondria perspective. So we have robust aerobic fitness and from a, a contractile and strength perspective so that we're lifting weights regularly as well. I would put my eggs in both of those camps any day over the potential benefits of being a caloric restrictor. Yeah, having spent some time doing some physio in the ICU and also in aged care rehab, just seeing uh, people in there who were totally sound of mind and, and amazingly cognizant. I had this 193-year-old lady mm -hmm. who was playing words with friends with her son every day, um, but she couldn't stand up out of her chair just because of how um, little strength she had and little muscle mass. And um, yeah, and the, like the most common reason people end up in hospital and um, in, in, the, in the elderly now is um, falling over, breaking hip. And then the outcomes after that are just are terrible. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's really, that was very eye opening just to see like, it's, it's more than just being, you know, like looking a certain way in your, yeah. in your thirties, forties and fifties. More it's than like, juvenile aesthetics. Oh, it's, mate, uh, it's oh, this is, this is scary. actually where I'd love to finish this conversation, uh, because just the, 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 the beginning, um, how does exercise affect your sex drive and libido is probably very appealing, um, easily appealing to men. Uh, but when you start to have these conversations with a lot of females, when they come into your gym or as a personal training client or a physio patient, and you're trying to encourage a woman to build muscle, which we all do, uh, all of our programs are really designed to, 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 to build muscle at unity gym, because we're such big proponents of this concept of, you know, the, 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 the most important, the number one priority is to maintain muscle mass and strength as you age. Uh, um, how do you, how do you have those conversations with your female clients, Tony? Because I know that you've had the, um, the luxury of training, uh, people like Hattie who ha you clearly have no problem convincing her to put on muscle. <laughs> but to give a little bit more context to what I think you're saying is that what you're getting at is that a lot of the female uh, clients that we, uh, that we talk to this about try to reject the idea that building muscle. Yeah, that's right. Because that we, because our program involves quite a large component of lifting weights and, and resistance always, training related to aesthetics and say, I don't want to get, I, I don't want to get huge, you know, um, uh, what, what, yeah, I'd love to know how you, how you would tackle or handle that and question or complaint. Yeah, it's very, it's a very common, um, issue that's raised by 
primarily females and some males, especially athletes. And Phil would know this as well is that you work with any endurance athletes. Oh, I don't want to lift weights because I don't want to get extra weight because I have to carry that weight for 180 kilometers. So yeah. we, we get that. And for females, there certainly is this idea that I don't want to bulk up. For me, it always begins with education. And, and that is, this is why strength training is so important from your bones perspective, from your muscle perspective, that over the age of 50, we lose one to 2% of our muscle mass every year and three to 4% of our strength. And then after the age of 60, it's a really sharp decline. So there's no use getting to 60 or 70, but being frail. You might have a great brain, but you won't be able to do anything. So I always explain muscle through the decades of life and then explain that weight training can be done in such a way that it is targeting muscle strength rather than muscle mass. And any program that's designed to build muscle takes a really long period of time with very specific variables of volume and intensity and frequency and nutrition. And even then, most women fail to get the muscle mass that they desire. It's a very difficult job. So I explain all of that from an educational perspective and uh, and then just ease them into it gently. For, for As an ectomorph all my life and someone who's struggled to put on, it took me 20 years to put 10 kilos of lean muscle on, I can certainly v validate or furnish the argument that it mm. is very, very difficult mm to do for most people anyway. Yeah, but I think also kind of highlighting the difference when, when you're looking at strength, it's going to be a combination of hypertrophy, but also neural drive and, and an ability to activate the muscle you have. So I think kind of taking that avenue of um, talking about it, when, especially over like the first six weeks while hypertrophy is gradually ramping up, like you don't really see much um, muscle size difference, but you can have a massive in increase mm. in, um, in mm. strength just from the ability mm. to be able to activate the motor units that are um, already there within your body. And so training is an ability to continue to activate these motor units, which means that if you, your body's pretty thrifty and it realizes, that, hey, if we're not activating these things, we can start to get rid of them over the years. But if you're kind of continually activating, you're getting that neural drive going, turning it from like a, a, a little creek worth of drive into a raging river of, of a stream, then your body's going to be like, hey, we need the thing. We're not going to get rid of it. And main, like muscle maintenance is, um, is, is, yeah, muscle maintenance is continued, maintained. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's some, there's like some photos that have gone around with the seven-year-old triathlete um, thigh versus like a, you know, and that regular seven-year-old, like it doesn't mean he's got these massive mm. um, thighs that are, you know, looking like a track cyclist in the Olympics, but he's, you know, got this um, really solid mass that's appropriate for his size because it's appropriate for the activity he's done for his whole life. So yeah. it's interesting that we've ended up on this, um, uh, on this topic and, uh, and in this way, because one of the questions that didn't make it to the final cut for this podcast series this year was uh, by a, a woman in our uh, online coaching who just asked a simple question for females, what's a better training modality, volume-based training or intensity-based training? And uh, it's, it's from Helen, who's got a lot of questions in there. So I had to eliminate a few, mm. of, her, <laughs> a few of her questions. But it's a decent um, question to answer uh, because it is 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 um, definitely on point with where this conversation's going. So from that, um, uh, from your perspective, Tony, for for a general woman, um, uh, a forty year old woman, what would you suggest? Volume based training, uh, intensity based training, or a straight up undulating periodization model? 
you absolutely need both unless one is an athlete that requires one or the other. So for an athlete that requires muscle and muscle only, then volume is the driver of creating muscle growth. Whereas intensity or working very close to your one RM, which is by definition what intensity is, is required for changes in strength. So if you were a powerlifter or a weightlifter, then clearly then intensity becomes the answer. But for everyone else, you need both because no one type of training intervention has the monopoly on results across bone, muscle, fiber types, energy systems, and so forth. You need all. And whether, Yanni, to speak to your point, whether you do them in series, so you do a strength focus and then a volume focus, or whether you do both strength and volume in the same session, that decision, to my mind, is a, is a minor one. There's so many different ways that you can order and sequence the variables. And frankly, over time, you're going to use all of them for variety and for interest. But you do need both inputs of maximal strength, intensity and volume. Brilliant. Beautiful. Awesome. Yeah, that, that that's we, we in, in our uh, gym program, just to keep because like, there's always an element and you sort of su uh, um, suggested it there is that not just getting the best possible result, but you also do have to keep the individual coming back for more. Uh, and mm -hmm. so from a coach's perspective, you're always sort of balancing, you know, what do, what do I need to do to follow the principles that have stood the test of time that are going to get the best possible result, but without boring this person to death so that they end up looking for something else, which may be sub you know, suboptimal or, 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 you know, you know, like the old boot camp style, just flog you until you fall over style training that people tend to flock to uh, when they're bored, you know, or wanting a little bit of something new. So yeah, it's great. It's good. We, we follow an undulating periodization model. We do four weeks of intensification, four weeks of volume, and we try to stick to introducing new movements on the volume periods so that people can bank some time under tension before going heavy. And uh, it works pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tony, thanks so much for joining us again. For those of you out there that would like to connect with Tony, Tony can be found on Twitter at Tony Bataji, T-O-N-Y-B-O-U-T-A-G-Y. Uh, and you can check out his interesting articles uh, or his takes on articles that he's read. And uh, if you want to follow him on Instagram at Tony Bataji, uh, you can see more training related information. And remember that anyone can enroll in any of Tony's courses at TonyBataji.com. And if you're a coach or a fitness professional or even just a fitness zealot, I highly recommend that you check out his courses. They are uh, amazing and they've been pivotal to our uh, Unify movement system that we teach online and at Unity Gym. Thanks so much for joining us for another great uh, discussion, Tony, and we look forward to having you on the show again soon. Thank you, guys. Much appreciate it. Thank you.